Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my fellow political scientist, Will Miller. Hey, Mill. Hey, Will. How you doing? I'm doing good, Mike. How are you doing? I am doing okay. I'm actually really excited about this because, of course, as you know, this is a very uh, special Wednesday edition of the show. Yeah, it is. I'm excited about this, too, and I'm excited to, to get to talk about issues in a, a slightly different way than we typically do. Yeah, as, as uh, listeners, some listeners know, I mentioned, uh, I think, last week, at least hinted at it, that uh, you and I are, are writing a book about, uh, well, about all the ways that I want to reform democracy and sort of some of the responses to it that uh, that you might have. And, uh, and what we're going to do, I, I kind of explained the project in general, is, uh, again, I have all these ideas about ways I think that the system could be made more small d democratic. And uh, what we wanted to do was try to find a way to take what we do on the show sort of a, you know, a bipartisan dialogue and take the best of that and turn it into a book. And so the book is actually going to be in dialogue form. How it's going to work is since I'm the liberal who wants to make all the crazy changes to the system, I'll start off each chapter with my proposal to change various things. Will will respond with his critique. I'll consider that critique and see if there's maybe some uh, compromises, changes, adjustments that I can make based on, you know, what Will has to say. And then I'll kind of throw it back to him saying, well, okay, how about this? Could you sign on to part or all of this? And to kind of make it a little more of a, not really a real world situation, but what we're going to do is pretend that Will is a is a senator in his, uh, what do we say? Well, your final term, right? Your yep, final, final year. Term. And when you retire, you're just going to retire, go, I don't know, fishing and hang out with your grandkids or something. It's not like you're going to be a lobbyist or anything like that, right? Yep. I'm walking away. So, this is going to be make my impact and go. You are. And I, I, I hesitate to say you're basically like a Jeff Flake type, type figure, I suppose, or something. Like I hope that, I'm I hope I'm a little more workable <laughs> than that. But yeah, same I didn't idea. think you'd like that. Yeah, actually, yeah, Jeff, no, that's the right concept. Yeah, exactly. So uh and we have a, you know, we have a lot of, I think, really interesting topics. We're going to be talking about things like uh, multi-member district, ranked choice voting, reforming the electoral college. I have all kinds of thoughts about campaign finance reform and expanding the electorate, uh, uh, making Congress more democratic, more accountable, maybe, and just a bunch of things, really. And um, but to kind of give you an overall sense of where I'm coming from with all of these reforms, my, my basic argument here, and I'll be making it in various ways throughout the, the book, and, you know, and Will will be pushing back, I'm sure, when appropriate, is that one of the reasons why 
Americans trust government so much less than they used to is the belief, and I think it's a well-founded belief, that government really isn't working for them, isn't doing what's in their interests. And of course, you know, opinions vary about whose interest government does promote, whether it's, you know, I guess liberal elites, you might say, on the left, uh, on the right, Will, right? I mean, uh, absolutely, big business, Wall Street on the left, that sort of thing. But there's definitely, I don't know if you disagree with me, Will, that there's a pervasive sense that sort of the people are being kind of left behind in a lot of these, in a lot of these policy debates. Yeah, I think that's definitely the key. And I think what's interesting about the way we're approaching this is, as you've put it, you coming from the left, having a lot of these ideas. And I mean, even the one we're going to talk about today, it's one where when you, you first presented it and I read through the idea and your argument, not something I'd really thought about, not something I'd really considered, you know, staying on my my conservative right side of, you know, the, the boat is afloat, don't rock the boat. But in the grand scheme of things, still looking at ways that we can, um, and again, overhaul is the wrong word. I think we're talking about tweaks um, that could hopefully improve not just how government's performing from an efficiency and effectiveness standpoint, but to your point here, how citizens feel represented in those discussions. Yeah. And how citizens feel like their voice is being heard and government is there for the people while still maintaining the constitutional history and the original idea of the framers. It's a it's a thought about, you know, juxtaposing these ideas of, you know, what was the intent with what do we need today and how might we do this if we knew everything from, from the last couple of hundred years? What would we have done differently? What do yeah. we think the framers would have done differently? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think that's really the one of the great things about a dialogue format that we're going to be using in the book, because I, I'm sure you've had this experience and listeners, I'm sure you've had this experience. You, you read a book or an article about some big idea and you have all these questions and you say, well, what about this? How about that? Or you didn't consider X and, but, but you can't, there's nothing you can do with those comments or questions. Well, if you have your own podcast, sometimes you can, you know, get the authors <laughs> on, but, but, and, and it's, it's always been a very frustrating experience to me. And so I, I'd like to think that, you know, this kind of overcomes some of those problems and really addresses some of the frustration. I think that a lot of, a lot of readers have careful, intelligent readers have when they, when they pick up books about politics and policy. And that's one of the many reasons I'm excited about this project. And I think especially being able to take some of these ideas seriously. I feel like a lot of times we hear about governmental reforms and people kind of, you know, brush them aside thinking, oh, that could never happen. And part of the reason why they can't ever happen is because we never actually look at what would work, what wouldn't work about these types of proposals. Yeah. Um, so understanding that sometimes these, you know, these sort of hypotheticals are actually what can drive an impact change versus just being a, a talking point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, I think in general, my overall uh, kind of the genesis of this actually is I teach a class in American political institutions uh, all the time. And our final project that I have the students do is to ask them, well, you know, what would you what sort of thing would you change about the system as it's as it's set up? And when we talk about that, uh, you know, a lot and they come up with some pretty creative things sometimes. But it kind of led me to start thinking about, well, you know, we have these institutions and these processes, most of which were set up in the 18th and 19th century. And of course, the United States of 200 or even 100 years ago was a vastly different place. And so this isn't me trying to trying to sort of be down on the, on the framers or anything like that. It's just 
the recognition that you design a political system for the environment that you're in and you understand. And I would argue that one part of good, responsible governance is every once in a while considering whether or not the system is, in fact, well designed for the environment in which it finds itself. Absolutely. I mean, we have to be willing to ask these questions. I mean, you know, Mike, you come from an academic institution. You know that every couple of years they ask us to hit the pause button and think about, you know, what's working, what's not working, what should we do differently? We need to be doing that across the board and looking at governments is part of that. I mean, if people are feeling like it's just momentum's rolling away that says we keep doing things the same way we always have just because we always have, the only way to stop that is to pause and look. It doesn't yeah. mean government shuts it down yeah. while we do it. It's just an opportunity to to see if there's ways to improve. Yeah. And and by the same token, I, you know, I, I understand that people have a tendency to fall in love with their own big ideas. And that's where I, I know that you, in fact, will be a very useful check on some of my big ideas. I, I tend to be a person of great enthusiasms. And so before some of these things can run away with me, you, you, I, I know that you'll be able to, as you know, you have when we talked about the the, the idea we will be talking about today about reforming the Supreme Court, that there are a couple of things you said. And I thought, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, that's a that's a pretty good point. But but I guess we should just probably get at get get to it if you're if yeah, you're ready. That sounds good to me. So where Will and I started was with the Supreme Court. I have some ideas about changing the Supreme Court appointment process. And my initial proposal is this. During the first year of each presidential term, the president will appoint one justice to the Supreme Court. The Senate must, by a majority vote, either confirm or reject the president's appointee within six months. And then the newly confirmed justice will begin serving at the start of the court's next term. And should a vacancy occur on the court in the year prior to the first year of a second presidential term, the president will not be entitled to appoint a new justice to the court. So basically, the idea here is to give every president at least one Supreme Court uh, appointee, essentially. I think that's that's reasonably clear, right? Which not, isn't how it's done today. And, and, you know, we focus so much on the Supreme Court, and I think justifiably so, because, of course, that ability to nominate justices, hugely important to presidents, can have an effect for, well, you know, even a generation or more, right? And and, you know, that, that I think is why so many of these nominees are in their 50s, because presidents understand the importance of leaving that kind of uh, that kind of a legacy. And, and of course, well, you know, one of the most common suggestions about changing this would be maybe, well, why don't we have term limits for Supreme Court justices? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think that's what people default to is let's just limit them out either by age yeah. or number of years served or something else. And that's what we always see as the go-to. If we're going to change the court, it's got to be term limits. Yeah. And, you know, th there are there are people who've even, uh, uh, even Supreme Court justices who weren't necessarily opposed to this idea. But, and I get it. I, I certainly agree that it's good to have justices be in touch with society. And, you know, in fact, this is a point that, that was made actually by current Chief Justice John Roberts. Now, this was back when he was uh, an assistant White House counsel in the Reagan day. So this is the young uh, John Roberts. But he said, you know, there's a lot to be said for changing life tenure to a term of years without possibility of reappointment. And he said, you know, when the framers did this, people didn't live as long as they do now. But hey, if you have a judge who's insulated from life from 25 or 30 years, that could really be a problem. Now, 
I don't know, Will. I, I'd be willing to bet that if we asked John Roberts that same question today, he might say that his views have um, maybe evolved. Uh, what do you think? Coming from the right, I hope his views have evolved. Um, I'd like to see him stick around for a little bit. But yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's like any position. I mean, Mike, again, both of us coming from academics, for me, a lot of that with term limits is the equivalent of saying you have tenure for life. But once you hit this age or this many years, you're out of a job um, just because we're trying to protect ourselves from those faculty who get comfortable and keep teaching it the same way they did in 1970, yeah. even though it's 2020. It's I'm not seeing the root problem. And a lot of that comes back to the the fact that I may disagree politically with what Supreme Court justices say or do or find. I don't know if I'm equipped as a political scientist to actually look at their jurisprudence and see, was it the right decision? How do we judge that or score that to know are they too insulated? Are they yeah. not too insulated? We feel like, you know, Clarence Thomas is the one who gets picked on a lot here, I think, for not being particularly engaged in oral arguments. But you read his decisions and there's reason and rationale behind them. Even if you don't politically agree, does that mean that Clarence Thomas shouldn't be on the court still? Yeah. I, and I don't know the answer. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are uh, both on the left and the right. If you'd say if you'd say to people on the left, well, 20 year term limits, that would have knocked Justice Justice Ginsburg out. You're like, well, no, we can't have that. She's awesome. And on the right, you know, Justice Scalia, big hero to the right. And he served well over, you know, well over that that sort of period that most people talk about. I mean, I feel like there definitely are some advantages to term limits, like like, for instance, it would give us a much more predictable nomination schedule as opposed to whenever somebody happened to die or, or something like that. And I see I see a, a positive to that. I also see a positive to the fact that it would make things more predictable and, and probably help with some of the inequalities in which presidents get to nominate how many justices. And I think there's something to be said for that. But initially, I was kind of a fan of term limits. But then I thought, you know, they're just, as you pointed out, they're just kind of arbitrary. You know, what makes 18, 20, 25 years the right amount of time for a justice to serve on the court? I, I'm just, I'm just kind of uncomfortable with that yeah. idea, I guess, which is why I, I, I rejected it. Also with the fact that, you know, there are some people who've been on the court for a long time who are, you know, that experience that they bring to bear can be hugely important. I mean, I greatly value the decades of experience that Justice Ginsburg brings to bear on these decisions, and I wouldn't want her to be forced off of the court. And I mean, I think part of the question, too, becomes if you look at Justice Ginsburg, does she take the appointment in the first place if she knows it's for 15 years or 10 years right. or five years? I mean, do we do we hurt ourselves with what type of legal minds we get looking for the court? I mean, the Ginsburg appointment, I think, is a perfect example um, for Clinton, that was Ginsburg was not a first choice. Anybody who's ever read George Stephanopoulos's All Too Human, Ginsburg was like the C list. There were political theorists on there, and they ended up going to Ginsburg because they disqualified or had everybody else remove themselves for other reasons without term limits even being considered. Right. Um, so if we make it so complex, do we end up with you know a JV Supreme Court? Which, from my end, back to your earlier point, is one of the most, if not the most powerful pieces of the presidency, because that legacy can last so long. But also to your point, it's a matter, I don't want to say luck, but to some extent, it is a matter of luck today as to whether justices retire, die, move on during a president's term as to whether they do get that ability to have that legacy yeah. impact. 
And that's that's why I rejected the term limits idea and proposed what I did. Basically, that that uh, my my initial proposal, essentially that, well, every every term, every every president gets at least one. You get reelected, you get another one. And now I think this does a lot of good things. It, it lowers the nomination stakes, I would argue, by providing each president one appointment per term. It addresses the problem of appointment inequality between presidents. I mean, it doesn't solve it because, of course, justices can retire or die. Uh, it also provides for regular turnover on the court because, or at least regular change, I guess we could say, on the court because there'll always be at least one new appointee every four years, but we, we don't lose the benefit of those experienced members. Now, the one thing that probably causes the most concern among people is, wait a second, the only way you could do that would would be to expand the size of the court. It would naturally have to happen because it would change over time. But I don't necessarily think that's a problem. First off, it's not a constitutional problem, as you know, Will, right? There's nothing. Nope, nothing in the Constitution says right. nine. Not a magic number. And in fact, if you look at the history, there were seven justices from 1807 to 1836. Then we went to nine from 1837 to 1862. Weirdly, there were 10 in 1863, uh, and then in 1866, apparently, they changed it back because Congress didn't want uh, Andrew Johnson, who was getting ready to be impeached, to name any new justices. So they took it down to seven. Uh, and it was, it, I mean, you know, so the point being is that this number has changed. There's nothing special about nine. Now, I think you can make the case that it makes sense to have an odd number, right? Because maybe you don't want split decisions. Um, but as yeah, I, and and I think the thing with the split decisions for me is it feels like a punt, even though it's not. Yeah. Um, I look at the politics of it. And now all of a sudden, if I think a split decision is likely now, which, you know, appellate district I go towards makes a difference. Sure. So I worry about the strategy and the way that gets manipulated, where it's, you know, I'm pretty sure this will be 4-4. So I want to make sure it's in a liberal court or a conservative yeah. court so that when they punt it back to me, I can have it done. So it's I just worry about what that does in terms of, you know, year to year. Do we see things coming back more and more regularly versus letting precedent set in a little bit? Yeah, you know, and I don't think that that's an entirely uh, uh yeah, you respond or wrong kind of reaction to have. I get that reaction, I guess is what I'm saying, because, you know, certainly you can have a case where then in, say, the Third Circuit, uh, this would mean, you know, the law would mean one thing and the sixth something else. Now, my, my guess is that the justices on the court would work particularly hard to make sure that they didn't split on these things. And so it would probably change how they approach some of these issues, because, of course, the court is also, you know, well, uh, has a great understanding of its own legitimacy and importance. And so it might actually change how justices approach their job. Um, and so there will be those periods. But we've, we've had periods before yep. where the court is recently. Been, yeah. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if you think about it, I mean, Kagan removed herself from a number of cases yep. um, that and, left us at eight. And I also point out when uh, after Scalia died and uh, and Mitch McConnell uh, decided that, well, you know, there was this bizarre precedent standing rule that uh, that meant that you couldn't uh, you shouldn't vote on president's nominations in the year of an election. If the moon was in the third house of Jupiter or something like that, I don't know. But uh, we went over a year, I believe, with eight. And, you know, that was that was fine. So because uh, it was it, the right eight. So Mitch was happy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, that's that's my basic 
idea. What's your, I mean, what's your initial take on that? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because the whole idea of the court and the political power, I think on things like, um, you look at Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan appoints John Paul Stevens. Do you think Reagan appoints Stevens if he knows the, the way Stevens will ultimately turn? Or we look at Bush and Roberts. I mean, you know, we've talked about Roberts already. Do you think Bush appoints Roberts knowing that he's going to be the the tie-breaking vote that upholds the Affordable Care Act? We think about everybody being so linked to the president appoints them. But in reality, we've seen time and time and time again that Supreme Court nominees become Supreme Court justices and all of a sudden the words they use, the way they vote, the way they decide seems to shift, especially over time. So it's also incredibly difficult for me to figure out what does guaranteeing a president the opportunity to appoint somebody do to that? And where does the the push come from? Because it's not just a, a left-right thing in my eyes. Um, I know that obviously there are a lot of liberals looking at the, the electoral map today and looking at the age of the court and being worried that two or three appointments could really lead to a lead to a long-term conservative stronghold on the Supreme Court. Um, but, it, but it's about more than politics at that point. My concern with the idea of making sure that a president gets to appoint a justice so quickly after being elected is what it does to checks and balances. Yeah. Because what I immediately envision is, you know, let's say that I'm running for president, Mike, and you're going to be my vice president. And then I know that the person I'm going to nominate to the court is this other person. That other person all of a sudden is on the campaign trail with me. They're part of the election. They're politicizing themselves potentially. Um, so I worry about that. And legislatively, I worry about, you know, the honeymoon period still allows us to get some things done. If that honeymoon period for a president in those first, whether, whether the honeymoon period today is three days, 30 days, three months, whatever it might be, if that is shaped by a a Supreme Court nomination battle, what does that do for creating a positive working relationship between those two bodies? How does that impact that? How does that change how the, yeah. the three branches ultimately function? Yeah, and you know, I, I guess my initial response to that is that, well, what, what you see is politicized, and you mentioned that point first, I see as more transparent because, of course, a lot of folks in 2016 kind of held their noses, voted for Trump, that, well, they knew he was getting an appointment because Mitch McConnell was certainly not going to stop that one for sure. But, but, but and you know, but the moon was in the right place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but they didn't know who that person was going to be. And I actually kind of like the idea of saying, well, you know, that question, well, who are you going to nominate? Well, that way we can vet that person. The voters have a much better sense because, of course, a lot of folks who voted for Trump said, well, I think I know the sort of judge. I'm pretty sure I know the sort of judge he's going to nominate. But I like the idea. And this goes back to my idea of making things more democratic, more public involvement, saying, hey, this is the person I if you elect me, this is the person I will nominate. Now, of course, that presidents always have the right to change their minds on that, but then there might be electoral repercussions from that. So I don't, I don't see that as too much of a problem, but there was the other point that you made about the honeymoon period that, you know, it, it caused me to, to really think, well, yeah, that, that actually is a, is a, is a pretty good point. And so I think that may be a reasonable 
compromise response to that is to move that nomination from right after the presidential, right after the president takes office in January of that year, which is kind of what I initially envisioned. And I kind of like the idea. I come into office, bring in my new team, including my new Supreme Court justice. But you're, you're right that that confirmation hearing would just suck all the oxygen out of it. And it would make it hard to use that honeymoon period, such as it is these days, at least, to get anything done. And, you know, you suggested when we talked about this earlier, maybe what might be better is to move it until after the midterm election. And I really like that idea because, you know, not only does it give the new president some breathing room to kind of figure out policy and do other stuff, but also I think it gives that that president more of a chance to really seriously consider nominees and not just pick somebody based on who's going to look good in the campaign, that sort of thing, you know? So I like that. I like that idea. And I actually would amend my proposal to make that Supreme court pick after the midterm elections and after the presidential elections. That's a great idea. Yeah. And I like that approach because again, it gives a president the opportunity to really get a lay of the land. It gets an opportunity for, um, the public to see how the president is for the president to see what he might want as a legacy. And I also feel like there's a built in check all of a sudden where, you know, if we wait till the midterm election, the American electorate will have the opportunity, at least in, you know, a third of the states to to have a say on who are the individuals that are going to ultimately vote on this confirmation. So if they know that it's a president that you know, and use Trump right now. So let's say this is what's going on. All of a sudden, those Senate races that are in the midterm election become even more important because if they want to stop a particular Trump nominee, all of a sudden it's, well, let's go out there and make sure that we get the right people into those seats, which adds some some extra pressure without any question. But it also forces a president to think about, do I want this nominee bad enough to risk losing the Senate for the last half of my first term? Right, right. It changes that dynamic to where there's not as clear of a a win-loss. And I think it just opens the door for for there to be more deliberation going into it and allowing those first two years to still be an opportunity to focus on legislation versus having to look at, yeah. you know, a nomination right at the start. Now, you know, not only that, it's just this just occurred to me, but another potential positive is it would probably drive up turnout in midterm elections because more is at stake. I would assume. I would hope so. Um, now, again, it might be in certain states, but the fact is, if we're doing it at midterms um, in thirds, everybody's going to have their shot and everybody's yeah. going to have their time for two out of those three. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's really still a, a good good opportunity to see that happen. And I just in general feel like that's going to help get buy in for that justice. Yeah. Um, that this wasn't something where you came, you're only there because you filled some type of gap. It's not going to to lead to those types of concerns or thought processes as much as knowing that you were nominated at a time where we tend to see nominations um, and this is how it's going to work. And again, the the idea of your proposal that I like is knowing that that's set into to law, basically, that we're going to have this means that the gamesmanship that typically surrounds it gets limited to to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the other part we haven't talked about yet, but I wanted to get your take is, is, you know, for a long time, and I've talked about this on the show before that I feel that essentially the the president, while he may not be entitled to his nominees, he's entitled to at least some sort of a decision on his nominees. And that that's the reason for, you know, people might say, well, Mike, you're you're a Democrat. You hate what McConnell did, you know, with with the Garland nomination. Yeah, absolutely. I do. But I'd like to think that I'm intellectually, you know, honest and consistent enough to have opposed it no matter 
who did it, because I really feel like it, the advice and consent of the Senate means that the Senate has an obligation to seriously and in an expeditious manner, though that's not in the Constitution, you know, in an expeditious manner, give all of the president's nominees that that the president submits to them a fair consideration and a vote. Uh, and so that's why I put the six month thing in there. Now, obviously, the Senate could, you know, they say in six months, well, we don't have enough information. We'll vote this candidate down certainly but there would be nothing that would prevent the president from renominating them with more time if that were in but it seems to me that based on historical what we've seen in terms of how long it takes to do these things if the senate's serious about it 6 months is plenty of time and so i was wondering how you felt about that aspect of the proposal i think that's i like the idea of the 6 months i'm with you i don't think this is something that needs to be drawn out for the sake of drawing it out um and I, what I really like about it is it standardizes this. I mean, McConnell's the the clear example um, in terms of of being. I don't want to use the words problematic, but being especially gamesmanlike with how he handled um, the the last appointment replacing Scalia. Um, but you should be able to do this in six months, especially when you know it's coming. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, a good my point. assumption here is, is this is something where a president's still going to kind of let it be known who their person's going to be, especially if the Senate elections are going to get higher turnout. We're going to want to have some sense of how to rally the base, which means we should be able to start doing our research and have a sense of what's coming way beforehand. And at that point, six months shouldn't be a problem if we know as soon as we come back in January, we're going to start this and we have to be done by July or yeah. in July. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, oh, it's tough to schedule. There's vac- All that should be out the window. Yeah, I, I I agree. So I you know one other thing I wanted to point out is, of course, this would not be this would be a change in uh, Senate rules. So the Supreme Court thing would have to be a law that you know the Congress would pass and the President would sign. But the six month thing that would just be an internal Senate procedural sort of sort of thing. And that brings me to a point I I forgot to mention this. Will and we started off that in almost all of these proposals, there's one big exception that we're going to be talking about over the next. Gosh, I don't know how many months, like six months, something like that. I don't know how long it takes us. But I thought that we should take off the table constitutional amendments just because, as you know, they're they're technically possible, but they're so implausible that that I feel like I don't know how much good it does to talk about that when we can maybe focus on meaningful reforms that would just basically take a legislative majority and the president who's willing to go along. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a good way to look at it. I think it's obviously something where constitutional amendments, especially in recent history, only happen when it is something that people agree on to such a a strong degree that they're almost non-political issues. Um, And in all honesty, too, I think looking at constitutional amendments today, the way it's structured, makes it a little easy to to stop all of these ideas because the idea of smaller conservative states giving up any power seems to be quite far-fetched. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think this just makes it more plausible because, again, the Constitution, I, I, I can't imagine an issue today where the Constitution gets amended easily with agreement from both sides. Yeah, not hardly. No, not not given the super majorities that you need to, to make that sort of thing happen, without a doubt. So exactly. So in the end, then, Senator Miller, what, what do you think this this proposal is put up to a, is put up to a vote? Uh, does does it get your support? Yeah, I think I actually could vote for this. And, and you know, as I thought about it, it's. I'm still not entirely convinced that mm-hmm. 
that the change is necessary, but I don't see an argument against this um, unless it is somebody who is just going to hardline. We don't want any political interference. If there's a set date, there will be some underground political interference that goes on. I think this makes a whole lot of sense. In America, the American public has that opportunity to vote on the Senate, which makes me feel like that direct representation is there. And in all honesty, it increases the power of the Senate seats in general, because you will know that every um, four years, a Supreme Court nomination battle is going to happen. Right. Um, you know, ultimately, there's going to be an impact on drift, but the court may end up even more polarized. I'm, I'm wondering who becomes the moderate. All of a sudden, who plays the role of Kennedy? Because my assumption is most of the nominees would be to the right and the left. So we're depending on people to kind of make the shift on their own. But in all honesty, if I'm a retiring senator, that's, that's not my problem. That's somebody else's. <laughs> well, and, you know, there's just going to be one objection to all of these changes. And that's the sort of you mentioned it before. If it uh, if it's not, well, entirely broke don't fix it. And kind of related to that, that idea of unintended consequences. And, you know, I think it's it would be wrong of me wrong of, of anyone to say, well, this will work and we, we can understand all the consequences. We, we can't necessarily, but that's true with any sort of change. And so while I think that that should be a consideration, it shouldn't be something that should just stop change dead in its tracks. Of course, you have to make a good enough case for that change. But, but I, in this case, I think that even uh, that, that the positives outweigh the negatives. And I am glad that in our very first discussion on uh, what's going to be, I think we have like 14 or so topics that we're actually able to, to come to some bipartisan agreement. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, it's one where I like it because I, I genuinely do agree with that proposal at that point. So it's not a, a force where I'm right. like, eh, I'm going to hold my nose and say, yes, I, I see the power there. Um, and I think in all honesty, as a political scientist, I think it'd be a heck of a lot of fun to watch how that nomination <laughs> battle goes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, definitely. Well, all right. You know, that was this was great. And and listeners, if you could just let us know what you think about this, if you have any thoughts about Supreme Court nominations or or other topics that you might want to hear us discuss, we'd love to hear from you. And you know how to get in touch with us. I imagine at this point you can just send us an email at mail at politicsguys.com. We have our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys as well. And also, hey, if you haven't yet uh, gone ahead and subscribed to the show, we would really appreciate it. Doesn't cost you anything. Helps us out a little bit. That would be great. If you want to help us out a little bit more, you can go to patreon.com slash politics guys and uh, see all the uh, various ups and extras and bonuses you can get for, for supporting the show financially and uh, more information on that. Again, patreon.com slash politics guys or our support page on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Masker. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.